0: Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory
1: forever and ever, Amen. Welcome to the podcast. In and through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim, and my name's Marshall.
0: And are we talking over our introduction music? We are, but we can fix that in post. Okay. Oh, what do you got there? Water. Oh, okay.
1: Boring. Nothing exciting. <laughs> Nothing exciting. Flavored you think, water? Is did it, you th- yeah. Did you think is something else because we're talking about Martin Luther? <laughs>
0: <laughs> as appropriate that as that might be, Tim. Not in the church building. Um, We are talking about Martin Luther. The Reformation begins. It does. Yeah. We,
1: we are going to be in this for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. Buckle up, buttercup. Yeah. This is going to take some time.
0: There's a lot of characters that are going to essentially have their own episode or maybe share it with one other but there's some there's some big important figures in this era of history and martin luther he gets his own today yeah
1: and and i think there's a there's a part of the reason this is going to take a while a couple of episodes mm. is one it is something that we're both really excited about sure of course it is. and since we write the schedule We'll write it in. <laughs> Secondly, we have to remember that there's a big mess that has mm-hmm. been made mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that has taken a long time to make. Mm-hmm. The bigger the mess, the longer the stain sits, the longer it takes to clean it up. Yeah, that's it, fair. They don't just they don't just flip this thing overnight. No, that's true. And, that's in, a- and a- <laughs> arguably haven't flipped it in some areas. Sure. <laughs> that
0: that is also true. Yeah. So to begin. I'll uh, I'll give people a bit of context cuz many people have uh heard the name Martin Luther um uh, and kind of understand to some degree at least where he might fit into to church history but to give people a reference point of what is going on in the world during his lifetime yeah. I've got a few of my fun things fun facts fun facts We need a jingle fun facts with Marshall You can just do there that There we
1: go That was it that was the jingle
0: We'll just like Sample that. It was done. We'll get Alex to do it. Alex on the production team. We'll actually make them work. Um, 1502, the first African slaves arrive in the New World. So it doesn't take the Spanish long. After finding the place, 10 years after they find the place, they're already bringing African slaves over to uh, to work in their their newfound colonies. Um, and that w- obviously would be a, a history... Defining uh, decision that would uh, continue to have implications even today. Um, from 1503 to 1506, Leonardo da Vinci paints the Mona Lisa. Apparently, it took him three years. I mean, I, I don't think he was like sitting down every single day working on it for three years, mm-hmm. but over the course of three years, he paints the Mona Lisa. I've seen the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris. Ooh, flex. I know. I was like 13 years old. Um, I don't know. It's fine. I I hope you're about to drop an I could do that. No, not an I could do that. I could do that. But like in the rooms leading up to that, there's like these massive paintings on some of the walls that are like, man, they're like 20 feet tall and like 40 feet wide. These massive paintings of like these like epic battles of European history. And I'm like, that's way cooler than the Mona Lisa. I I just don't get it. I just don't understand. Maybe it's because I'm not a real true artiste.
1: Okay, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, the value of art is its importance and not necessarily the skill that went into it. Okay, I think that's true with all forms of art. Okay. Right? Your, your musicians, who are the most educated and most talented, very seldom are the ones who write songs that shape culture.
0: Mm, that's true.
1: Right? Pop music shapes culture. And, uh, and so it's about being moved and it's about importance and where it lands in that time mm. and what people do with that. What causes something like that to rise or to fall is really hard to say. Sure. But you see it in literature, you see it in art, those kinds of things, um, music, as we mentioned. Secondly, do not fall prey to the whole, if I were smarter, I would like that more. <laughs> That's nonsense. Okay. Well, and, thanks, And Tim. that sort of snobbery exists in the visual art world, the musical arts, mm. right? Oh, you like the blues. Well, if you were smarter, you'd like classical music. Right. <laughs> You're just not smart enough to know why you like this better. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> right?
0: Yeah. No, that's a real thing. That's a real thing.
1: That was once said about jazz, mm. and now jazz is considered high art.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, now it's the... It's the yeah. The music snobs who like jazz. Because you get it. Um, speaking of art, 1508 to 1512, Michelangelo is painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Another little flex. I've seen that too. Uh,
1: You're a traveled man.
0: It's cool. Um, it's. I know we've had conversations about the whole whether or not depictions of Jesus are an issue. Okay. The Sistine Chapel is a depiction of the father you you gotta you gotta be with me, Tim, on this that can't be okay, right um
1: I would say it's obviously not a valid depiction well yeah, as far as is that what he looks like yeah, no, he's
0: without form
1: right yeah
0: um
1: and s- to take the hu- the limited human capacity to express God mm-hmm. And to try to do that in a form is dicey.
0: Yeah, okay. That's fair.
1: Uh, but but also, I don't think out of hand, instantly, oh my goodness, condemnable.
0: Right. I'm not saying we need to burn down the Sistine Chapel. And it was beautiful, don't get me wrong. But mm. I was just like, have y'all read this, the Ten Commandments? Like, I get that because like, Jesus took on human form to depict him in human form. I, I get that argument, so like fair enough, but like God the Father, come on, just as old man with a beard sitting on the clouds, I just not down with that. Anyways, he looks,
1: he looks very much like the Greeks would have projected Zeus. Yeah,
0: literally, you no. put a lightning bolt in his hand, and it's Zeus. Um, okay, fifteen twelve, Copernicus proclaims that the sun is in fact the center of the solar system. And people, you know, some people are a little riled up about Catholic that. Catholic
1: Church loses their mind. They lose their mind. <laughs> he, yeah. I think he gets
0: excommunicated over that. I think he does, yeah. And
1: uh, I think this is this is speaking without research. Sure. My understanding is that he's excommunicated when he refuses to say otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 1986-ish okay. is pardoned.
0: <laughs> they like they like remove the excommunication. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean like we've been to the moon. <laughs> we've been to space a couple of times and they're like Pope John Paul's like all right. fine all right. <laughs> <laughs> But since it's a papal order they weren't wrong <laughs> somehow. But Pope John Paul the like you know.
0: Yeah. I guess popes can like trump previous popes. Is that don't a, ask questions? I don't. Sure. Yeah, sure. Don't ask questions. <laughs> that's well. That's what Martin Luther is told. Anyways, um, but we'll get to that Ooh, in a minute. Nice. Um, fifteen nineteen to fifteen twenty two. We mentioned this briefly last week. Magellan Magellan circumnavigates the globe. Again, sorry to that one listener we lost with saying that, but he did. Um, which is like just quite a feat. I can't. I can't. The idea even today. With today's modern shipbuilding and technology and all of those things, for the idea for me of getting on a boat and circumnavigating the globe, even if it's a cruise ship, is like deeply terrifying to me. Yeah, like I'm like I'm not interested. I'm I'm the opposite. Really, I'm fascinated by
1: it. Oh no, to the point that I follow a kind of a community that does this sort of thing on YouTube. Oh really? Just in fascination, and. I have watched videos of people canoeing across the Atlantic. That's crazy. It, it yes. <laughs> but also really inspiring. <laughs> oh or people circumnavigating in like seventeen foot sailboats.
0: Oh my goodness, I can't even and imagine it's just
1: solo. And it's just incredible. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. I I
0: get I get pretty pumped about it. No interest. I will get in a canoe and cross a small lake. Put me in anything bigger than that. I'm not interested. Um, 1534, just to hit a little closer to home. Jacques Cartier, that French explorer that I actually learned about in school, unlike Christopher Columbus and all the others, uh, claims Canada for France. It wouldn't last. There you go. Because <laughs> the French bought, brought settlers and the British brought armies. And so you can figure <laughs> out how that one ends. Not too long. The
1: French long. also run out of money. The French, eventually they have their own revolution and they start selling things off like crazy.
0: After our good friend Charlemagne and maybe maybe even up to our our more recent friend uh, Joan of Arc, uh, the French don't do so great in warfare past a certain point. Um Napoleon would disagree. Well, that's true. but Yeah, that's true. Actually, okay, maybe I have to retract my comment. Apart from Napoleon, (laughs) a bit of flash in the pan. Anyways, so that kind of brings us up to the types of events that are going on in the times of Martin Luther. But I know that because we're just getting into the Reformation here, and because Martin Luther is kind of that first big figure, you had some things that you kind of wanted to remind us of where we're at. Sure to give us some context for this.
1: Yeah, so what I, what I want to do is I want to remind us that the issues in the church were not taking place in a vacuum. Mm. The church was the center point of the community, and people knew about this. We have developed the printing press, and the printing press is making books available. Mm. We are going to talk later about the Vulgate becoming available. We are seeing a rise in education, university studies. People are going to secular universities and they're starting to do things like stand up in the middle of sermons and going, wait a minute. That's not what you said last week. Mm. Or, you know what? I got my hands on a Bible. That's not what that says. Right. And the priest being unable to answer. Um, there's a a lot of reform from within being spoken for, Mm -hmm. right? So I, I just want to talk about some of the struggles that were going on that were very public, that people were starting to address or try to address. There had been waves of groups trying to put together systems. It's just really hard to put together these systems because the Pope himself is held up by thousands... Of priests and cardinals beneath him Mm -hmm. and so he can't just change everyone's lifestyle Mm -hmm. and most of these people who are priests and cardinals and in a lot of cases even the monks Mm -hmm. they chose this lifestyle and they're not they don't want to go back to work Mm -hmm. they don't want these things to change Uh, there's a pretty important church about to get built which costs a whole lot of money.
0: <laughs> we'll get into that. I got some notes And on that. Yeah.
1: so indulgences are becoming more and more a thing. And, yep. and so not only do they have to change their lifestyle and the way that they're fundraising, they would have to backtrack theologically, doctrinally, on what it means to be forgiven of your sin and then probably pay people back for <laughs> taking their money. <laughs> but here are, here are a list of some of the problems that were going on in the priesthood that people knew about, the church knew about, the common community knew about, uh, that were people were trying to reform. One, the uneducated priest. It's pretty common knowledge, historically, that the only Latin these priests knew were the masses that they were carrying out. Right, right. And And since no one in the world is speaking Latin at this point, Who cares if you mispronounce it, Mm -hmm. right? You just got these sounds that you're trying to recreate, and it takes on this whole mystical, magical notion that we talked about more at the beginning of the the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. but is worth revisiting here. That's very much a mindset, to the point that to say this is my body in the mass is to say hoc est enum corpus Mm -hmm. and a gross mispronunciation and mocking derivative of that is the etymology the the historical root of the beginnings of a word for hocus pocus no way how's that for fascinating wow hocus pocus is believed to be in its etymology a mockery of the latin mass huh because nobody knows what's going on here wow just say a thing and magic happens yeah uh yeah
0: well especially especially in the the rural peasant context mm -hmm. right there were nobility and learned people who who were who had some latin but yeah for the vast majority keep in mind that the vast majority of the population of europe and indeed the whole world at this period in history was rural right so these aren't well educated university educated noble people for the for the most part And so yeah So there's no There's nobody like Checking up on his Latin Because they don't know it either
1: Yeah uh, Not only we, We've talked about The selling of indulgences You know You want to be forgiven Of that sin You owe me a check uh, That expands To indulgences On behalf of those people In purgatory mm-hmm. You can pay For Like maybe you feel Like you're paid up You're taking chances But you got a thing going uh, but What about Dear old mom right? Wouldn't you like to jumpstart her? Even some that we're selling based on the quality of their indulgences, right? Like, I know I know you can buy from that guy, but mine are a sure shot, and they last. Mm. This one will actually cover another, the next thing you do. I don't know. Yeah, you
0: could, like, buy indulgences in advance. Yeah. It's like having a get-a-jail-free card in the game of Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but not only the selling of indulgences, the selling of offices. Oh yeah, that was so, huge. So bishops uh buying positions.
0: It's called par- parsimony,
1: yep. I think. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the level of immorality amongst monks and uh and priests led to a whole a whole genre of jokes among the people. Mm. Um, that were kind of akin to what might have been a hundred years ago, the traveling salesman jokes, right? Okay, about the priest coming to visit or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,, uh, just because it was that known, that mm-hmm. well known. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in fact, a lot of priests took on concubines and just paid an annual fine. <laughs> um, the holding of multiple offices.
0: Mm.
1: You you could be the cardinal and the priest, mm-hmm. the local priest, and then you draw two paychecks mm. uh, because you're holding multiple offices. Non-resident priesthoods. Right. You could be the priest drawing on the tax, the offerings of a parish that you don't even visit it's out there in italy somewhere but you're living it up in france drawing your paycheck um so non residency is an issue uh and and at times even the appointment of cardinals who had never been priests oh wow so just just skip just straight to cardinal can you
0: imagine like joining the military and just being a colonel right, yeah. out, right out of the gate yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like just skip, just skip like eighty percent of the steps. that's fine,
1: so so about twenty years ago, there was a series of commercials by Holiday Inn uh that were what they' were trying to get at was this is the smart choice, okay, We're the smart choice, and so they'd have like a an operating table, this is for all the Canadian listeners, all the American listeners already know what I'm gonna talk about. There'd be like an operating table, and this guy moves in, comes in, and he's like, you know, give me this, give me this, give me this, and they're like, "Who are you?" And he's just like, "I'm so and so." Just give me. and They're like, "Are you a surgeon?" He's like, "No, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night, right? Like, <laughs> okay. I made I made a wise decision, so surely <laughs> nice. at this okay. point, this is easy, right?" Okay. And there was a whole series of them. Okay, that's but fine. it's kind of that thing, right? Like right. you just <laughs> this you you're ready to be a cardinal. Yeah, I know a guy, right? I know a guy who who got this job for me. We're good. Yeah. Right. I'm, I sit just beneath the Pope. Yeah. Having never spent any time studying scripture or the mass or anything. Wow. So these are things Mm -hmm. that were known and debated, which is a key word we'll come back to known and debated for reform and had been for a long time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, that's fair. Yeah, and so into kind of this, this European church context, in 1483, Martin was born uh, to a middle-class co- family in Eisleben, which at that point was part of the Holy Rem- Roman Empire. It's now part of Germany. His father Hans was a businessman involved in copper mining and smelting, and he wanted to see his eldest son Martin climb up the social ranks to become a lawyer. Because that was for for someone of their status who wasn't noble, that was kind of that was a pretty high end gig. Right. That was about as good as you got without you know the purple noble blood flowing through your it veins.
1: It was it was very much, it, it, it's it's not a it's not a strange story. It's a very common story even today, right? Yeah. Like you have the you have the parent who grew up poor, mm-hmm. who worked really hard, mm-hmm. and made a real impact in his industry mm-hmm. and through blood, sweat and tears decided he was going to make a life for his son that he never had.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And that's exactly what took place.
0: Yeah. he He's like, I, you know, I did the blue collar thing and worked my way up to the top of that. I don't want my son having to sweat it out in a factory. I want him in a nice air conditioned office. So I'm going to make that happen for him. And, So sans air conditioning. Well, I guess there wasn't air conditioning. Yeah, true. Um, So in his teens, Martin sent away to school to study. Uh, He was sent to study something that was referred to at the time as the trivium. So it was essentially three main subjects that they would learn. Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So how to read and write, how to think, and how to speak. Yep. Which I guess for a lawyer is what you need to learn. Uh, Martin hated his schooling. He actually referred to it later in life as a personal hell. But he's good at it. He was good at it, but he hated it. Um, So he ends up finishing it, though, and he goes and studies at the university. He earns his master's degree degree at 21 years old. Uh, But he wouldn't go on to be a lawyer because in 1505, while riding back to his university, he was almost struck by lightning
1: crazy storm apparently. Yeah, just
0: wicked storm rolls through. He's almost struck by lightning. He's so terrified he shouts out, "Help, St. Anna. I will become a monk."
1: The patron saint of miners, which was his dad's profession.
0: Okay. He's well, a silver miner. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Cool. Well, and Anna was a though she's not mentioned in the scriptures is allegedly the mother of Mary. The mother of Jesus apparently. So that's what makes her a saint. Because to give birth to the Immaculate Mother of... Anyways, it's a whole... Sure. We've yeah. talked about this enough and why they, this was a thing. <laughs> anyway, so Luther would abandon his studies. He sells his possessions, his books, which would have been extremely expensive. And he enters St. Augustine's Monastery. To which his dad was like, yeah, I mean, do what you're going to do. No, he was not. He was so, he was so ticked. You know what? This this <laughs> story
1: so this story kind of hits home a little bit. Mm. I'm not going to say that my dad was that upset, mm-hmm. but my dad worked hard in a factory and was really excited to see his son off to do the university thing. Mm-hmm. And then to come home be like, you know what? I'm not going to pursue law or accounting or those things that, I was dabbling in. I think I'm just I think I'm gonna go into ministry. Mm. That's what I feel God leading me to do. I, I feel like there was a moment of Okay.
0: <laughs> so I It's I, not like that now. I did but go for a in, moment there was. Yeah. I did go into the the business world uh and was doing Fairly well for a young guy in this spot that I was. And when I told everyone that I was going to walk away from it, eh, not everyone was super thrilled. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> but hey, but they're all on board now. So that's cool. Um, anyways, yeah. So I, I could feel a bit of that. So, so Martin dives right into monastic life and he's praying for long hours. He's fasting and he's confessing. He's confessing a lot. Yeah. He's confessing so much that he's kind of getting on his superiors nerves a little bit. They're right. like, "Martin, stop confessing all your sins all. He's like there's just so much." They're like, I "Go home. Th- I had this random thought. I spoke a word out of turn. Like I did th- I didn't do this thing I was supposed to do." And he's just like constantly confessing and confessing. So they're it, yeah, they get a little frustrated with it.
1: It's it's not that he's a bad person or has a particularly checkered past that needs to be dealt with Mm -hmm. it's because he reads the response of jesus on what is the greatest commandment Mm -hmm. love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength Mm -hmm. so he says the logical conclusion from his lawyer's background is that the greatest sin is not to love the lord your god with the superlative all your heart soul mind and strength (laughs) and so anything short of all Mm. he counted as sin and that's why his, he would sit in the confession booth for three mm-hmm. and four hours at a time mm-hmm. until finally he would be told, come back tomorrow <laughs> when you got something to talk about.
0: So his superiors decide that he needs to be distracted from yeah. all this introspection. This is Even
1: p- thinking he might be mad. Sure, yeah. There are conversations about his mental
0: health. <laughs> right, right, fair enough. So they decide, they're like, look, you need something to distract you and occupy your time, so we're going to send you to take on some new studies to get out of this funk and you can go study theology. And so, man, they would come to regret that decision. Uh, <laughs> so, so, he beca- Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. So he began, oh man, he began studying theology and eventually earns his doctorate of theology and begins teaching theology at the University of Wittenberg in 1512. And around the same time, Pope Leo X decides it's time to repair and renovate St. Peter's Basilica. Mm -hmm. Now, the old building, this St. Peter's Basilica had existed. It had been originally commissioned by Constantine back in the 4th century because they believed that it was on top of the burial place of Peter himself.
1: This is the important church I alluded to.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so it's fallen into disrepair for a variety of reasons. One, because for a little while the papacy lost some influence and money. They, they were getting it back with the vengeance, but we talked about the separation of the papacy and all these different things that were happening. So they're like, okay, it's time, it's time to do a big Renault project. Uh, but the church had a problem. In order to fund the construction project, they needed a lot of money. And I've... Weird flex again, let's go. I've been to St. Peter's Basilica. And when we were getting the tour done, there are these massive pillars of this like dark purple marble and our tour guide tells us she says that marble there when i tell you it's priceless it's because all of that type of marble that exists in the world that we know of is here in this church
1: Mm -hmm. so there are no comps
0: there, yeah, there's no, you can't ensure that. Like there's no, there's no like, there, there's just, it's, it is what it is, right? So it is a massively uh, expensive project that they're about to embark on. And so a man named Johann Tetzel, who was a Dominican monk, was sent to Germany to sell indulgences, as you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. And he's supported by the local archbishop, a guy by the name of Albrecht von Brandenburg. And Tetzel's known for, apparently, one of the things that he said is something along the lines of, as soon as the coin yes. in the bowl rings, a soul from purgatory springs, or something like that. Which anyway.
1: also, interestingly, rhymes in German,
0: apparently. Yeah, I guess. in English and German are yeah. similar languages. Anyways, it was something along those lines. There's different variations of it that are recorded, but. Something along those lines of, as soon as you give us money, your dead relatives will get out of purgatory.
1: I've heard a lot of high-pressure tithing messages, but never. There are people on their way to hell, yeah, and all they're waiting for is you to drop that coin. (laughs) So that
0: seed, brother. Drop the coin, bud. Oh, man. Yeah, so here's the thing. Um, Archbishop Albrecht is totally on board. In part because he'd accumulated a lot of debt. See, he owed a lot of people a lot of money for the favors that they'd done him. See, you don't get to be archbishop mm-hmm. for just being a particularly holy man. You got to make the right promises. You got to get the right favors. You have to you know, rub shoulders with certain individuals. And to retain that position, you have to do all those things as well. So he owed a ton of money. So he and the Pope work out a deal.
1: You know, if you, look, if you really back up and look at the number of favors... And the money that's being traded for these positions, it's mafioso.
0: Oh, hundred percent. That's probably the that's probably the, the the closest thing we have in like for us to understand how the Roman Catholic Church worked. It was mafia for sure. It was about families and money and power and and killing and, your enemies, and favors, and lots and lots of favors. And be careful who you owed a favor yeah. to. And making offers that people can't refuse and all sorts of things like that. So so this Archbishop and the Pope worked out a deal. When it came to our good friend, Mr. Tetzel, in the region of Germany or in Saxony, more specifically, half the money would go to the archbishop's debts and half would go to Rome to rebuilding St. Peter's. So they worked out a mutually beneficial deal.
1: And when you consider the price of rebuilding and the split on his personal debts, that's a lot of (laughs) personal debt. (laughs) But he owed some
0: serious (laughs) money. Yeah. And so Luther hears about this practice and he's not happy because indulgences at certain points in church history were more more kind of like how we would understand penance. So someone Mm -hmm. confesses a sin and the priest says, okay, I need you to go do this thing.
1: Yeah. So the idea was there's the eternal offense that you have failed God. Yeah. But because our sins also affect the people around us, there is the earthly offense against your neighbor that needs to be paid on the earthly realm. That's my understanding of the explanation insofar as I've studied. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of saying your Hail Marys or paying your penance is to say your sin has eternal effect, but it also has temporal effect, Mm. and the penance needs to be paid on both sides and that's why you got to pay your indulgences. Right. <laughs> that was the explanation at the
0: yeah. time. And so Luther, who is a respected teacher of theology in the region, writes a letter to the archbishop. Um, and with it, he includes a document that was originally known as the Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, uh, but would later simply become known as the 95 Theses. Yeah,
1: the attitude behind this is not as rebellious as it's often made out to be.
0: No, because originally it's it's just like it's an internal doctrinal dispute. Right. It's like it'd be like if, not that this has happened or I imagine it would, but it would be like if you know, you or I got in the pulpit and said something and a concerned member of the congregation writes an email saying, I don't agree and this is why I don't agree.
1: Yeah, and and I think people would be a little bit confused because they would say well this is a very public thing. The the issue the issue is this you you can't take it out of its context, its mm-hmm. historical context. Right. So, as we stated early on, there are a number of people already talking about reform. Oh yeah. That people would have an ecclesiological or a theological debate it was not uncommon. No. Debates in society were the way things were handled and and the way debate was handled in that particular time and place, is that the, the one who wanted to debate would post his reasons for debate, his major points, his theses, publicly. Mm. Because debate would be against a specific person, if they were called to, and you would have opportunities, like we do with debates today, where you have the people who would come afterward with their questions and their thoughts. Yeah. And so you would post that publicly, and that gives an opportunity for the opponent you may call out or the public and or the public at large to understand what it is you want to talk about so that they can gather their thoughts and rebuttals Mm -hmm. and come to the thing prepared. Yeah. So to present theses for a debate is common practice. This isn't... I always grew up with this i this notion that Martin Luther just showed up and in cold blood, <laughs> was just like, Boom, <laughs> here's ninety five reasons you're wrong, yeah, and drops the mic and walks off. but that's not it at all. No. He's actually following the church practice. Mm-hmm. This is the customary practice of the culture and the church of the time to say, "Hey, I want to talk about these things. Yeah, and this is his list of things.
0: Yeah, and much of them are kind of questioning in nature. He seems to genuinely want to know what the reasoning is behind this practice. How is it justified that we're we're doing this kind of thing? And so, uh, you can you can find, um, you can you can access translations of the Ninety Five Theses, uh, if you want online. It's not not hard to find. Um, but some of the things that he kind of lays out are, you know, his argument that like when Jesus talked about repentance. He he's talking about a, a like a lifestyle of the believer of of repentance, right? Mm-hmm. Not this thing that you purchase from the church that is handled by the clergy. This is this is a, a lifestyle, an attitude, disposition towards God. And you know when he talk, he he and you know, he asked the question. He's like, look, what if the Pope has the ability to empty purgatory? If people give money, why doesn't he just empty purgatory? Why doesn't he just do it? Like if he if he has that power, just for the for the love and the well being of those who have sought to follow Christ but done so, you know, imperfectly, I guess. Why not just empty it? Then he gets a little more pointed, and he essentially says, "Okay, so why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than he, what he says is the richest, Crassus? Crassus was uh, contemporary of Julius Caesar. He was he was probably the richest man in the Roman in Roman history." Why doesn't the Pope, who has all this money, why doesn't he build the Basilica of Saint Peter with his own money, rather than that of poor believers? So he gets a little, he gets a little spicy. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that he went into this without some agenda, <laughs> but at the same time, like it's a fair point. It right? is, it is a very fair. It's point. It's a fair point. And so, according to tradition, right, Luther nails these theses to the castle door at Wittenberg, and some historians will say, no, well, he probably didn't actually do that, but. I think he did. I mean, Melanchthon says that he did, and he was a friend of Luther's, and he writes that that's what he did. So,
1: Yeah, sometimes what happens with historical revision is we actually come across valuable documents, and we say, oh, this is where the change was made over history, and we can kind of track that. Sure. We need to revise it. Sometimes it's what we talked about last week, where you have like one person way off over here who either has an agenda or is disconnected, Mm-hmm. who says something different, and people are like, oh, let's give that all the credit in the world and <laughs> not the wealth of history that has been established for years. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's people that are just like, yeah, that wouldn't make sense to me in my time and place. So it probably <laughs> didn't happen. Right, right. <laughs> but the historical evidence points that he did.
0: Yeah. So these theses were originally in Latin, but some of Luther's friends decide to translate them into German and then take advantage of that new printing press technology and circulate them throughout Germany in a matter of weeks. And in fact, copies find their way to France and to England and to Italy by the following year. And Martin Luther becomes a bit of a popular guy. Because he's saying, like you you alluded to earlier, he's saying a lot of the things that a lot of people are thinking, but too afraid to say. Right These people with this newfound biblical knowledge, this yeah. education they're they're looking at the selling of indulgences and the corruption in the church and all these things that are going on around them, and they're like, well i I feel like this is wrong, but I don't want to be the one to stick my neck out and then right. Luther does, right?" And everyone is encouraged by by his boldness.
1: That's how revolutions start, right mm-hmm. you have You have people who are looking at the inquisitions around them. And they're like, look, like we're we're telling jokes. The church is literally a joke mm-hmm. in so many instances. And they're they're looking around, they're doing these things sort of hush hush, but they're not gonna come out and really make a deal of it because they're gonna end up in an Inquisition. Right. Right. I'm not gonna do it. And then all of a sudden one person goes, and not just one. Mm. To, to stay true to what we're saying. Sure. But this one gets mass produced. It goes viral. And all of a sudden, people are going, no, he's right. He's right. And then and then you have neighbors that are saying, this is right. And all of a sudden, you're emboldened by the fact that you're not the only one who's been thinking this. Yeah. And, yeah. and there really are legs to this idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so... During Luther's time teaching—because c- here, the 95 Theses is, is focused primarily on the subject of indulgences. It touches on other issues, but, but Luther is kind of developing and growing in his theological understanding. He's teaching specifically through the book of Psalms, Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans. And he also comes to realize something else. The Bible teaches justification through faith, mm-hmm. not a justification through the ordinances of the church. Yeah, so before
1: he posts this, the thing that just really crushes him and completely alters him out of this heavy guilt that we talked about earlier on is he's studying about the righteousness of God. And one morning, he just wakes up with the epiphany that the righteousness of God is not the righteousness required of God, required of us by God. But the righteousness righteousness of God is the righteousness that God puts on us when we become believers. Yeah, it's not our righteous. It, it's not our righteousness. It's God's righteousness.
0: It's the idea of the Im- imputed righteousness of Christ.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And and in an instant, the clouds part to the point that it's arguably his conversion moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And uh. And and that is what causes him to just see the world and all of Scripture in a different light.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one of the things he writes, just in regards to this idea of imputed righteousness, because I have a few kind of written quotes, um, again translated, of course. But the uh, so he writes in regards to this idea of imputed righteousness. The first and chief article is this: Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and God has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All have sinned and are justified freely without their own works and merits by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in His blood. This is necessary to believe, and this cannot be otherwise acquired or grasped by any work, law, or merit. Therefore, it is clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. This type of teaching to us seems like basic Christianity Mm -hmm. 101 because it is because it is. But at that time in that context, that was revolutionary. Yep. And and, in that quote that I just read, even in Martin's writing of it initially, it's full of scriptural references. I didn't list them all out because it would have taken me too long to read it. But we take this for granted. I think sometimes that this is, this is what we hold to. This is what the the churches that we have grown up in, or many of us, or have come to know the Lord in, hold to this type of teaching. This was, at least, it, although it wasn't novel because it was scriptural, it was new that it was it was fresh, in, in in Middle Ages Germany. This was this blew people's minds when he would say these kind of things.
1: Yeah, and, and I would say, in in a number of circles, this is still mind blowing. Mm right sure i I don't think the Catholic Church has ever come around to this,
0: not quite and no.
1: and the Catholic and the orthodox church to to say, I don't need my earthly penance, mm yes, I failed, but God put Christ on the cross as a substitute for my sin, not because he thought I was done because I wasn't even born yet, right, but for the sins that I would do, mm. Mm-hmm. The penance has been paid. Yeah. And and that is still revolutionary. Mm-hmm. I would even say in some evangelical circles. Sure. It is still revolutionary. Yeah,
0: It has been overshadowed by other things. Yeah. So Rome ends up dispatching a number of theologians uh, to counter his arguments, kind of send the dogs on him. And one of those dogs is a guy by name of Johann Eck. And he and Luther go toe to toe and an ex big like one of the big debates that Eck and Luther have is over the interpretation of Matthew 16:18 which talks about Peter and on this rock, mm-hmm. right? I will build my church. And and the the Catholic Church had been for centuries using that verse as a proof text for the uh, infallible interpretation of the pope, that the way that he reads scripture or redefines it or whatever is paramount. Um And so Luther's not down with that, obviously. And so he's branded a new Jan Hus from a couple episodes. From the Hus the Man episode. Yeah, the Hussites. The Hussites, yeah. And Luther and Hus have a lot in common, let's be honest. Um, And so Luther is threatened with excommunication. If Hold on, on. we can't move
1: on from Hus yet. Okay. Because there's this great story with that. So he's called a Hussite, Mm -hmm. which where they are in this discussion... Is very much a region affected by Hus, mm-hmm. and it would also be a local kind of means of uh, bringing him to ill repute. Sure. And so they can they call him a Hussite in the debate, and Luther's is I'm not really familiar with Hus, don't really know what you're talking about as much as I've I've know who he is, but I've never read his books. Kind of a scenario. Okay. So they send him home with some books and say, well, then you need to read these and come back. And he comes back and he's like, heck yeah, I'm a Hussite. (laughs) (laughs) He said, said, I'm a Hussite. And it only furthers my point that the church is fallible because a conference of the church declared him a heretic. And he's obviously not. So yes, the church is fallible. But I don't even think you need to go to Who's for that. Like if I want to make Martin's argument for him after jesus declares that about peter peter still fails
0: oh yeah yeah i he mean denies there is christ after that there is
1: no reading of scripture there is no reading of the new testament that makes you think peter
0: was infallible <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah even paul has to call him out even after the whole like even yeah. after the indwelling of the spirit and yeah all that stuff. why not choose one of the i mean yeah go john sure, sure. i don't know he had revelation i guess i don't know whatever it's just a weird it's a weird pick it's because they it's because he's called the rock right so there you go yeah so so luther is threatened with excommunication if he doesn't withdraw his writings um and he doesn't (laughs) he he doubles down and is uh, subsequently cast out of the catholic church the following year now because and we've mentioned this a couple times heresy is technically an offense against secular authorities Luther would be called to defend his views in front of the secular ruler, who at this time was a guy by the name of Charles V. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was without question, without question, the most powerful man in the world at this time. Mm-hmm. So Charles V was the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella, those two who combined to make to make Spain. And through other various connections that happened. So so, their daughter was his mother and his father came from Germany. And so he was the Holy Roman Emperor, which is like everything that is now Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Czech Republic, all of that. The King of Spain, uh, the Archduke of Austria, the Lord of the Netherlands and Burgundy. There is no equivalent in today's day and age for someone that holds that same no. level of health and power. No. He's called before... The most powerful man in the world
1: with in in a trial mm-hmm. that has the name above all
0: other trials, the diet of worms has nothing to do with actual worms or diets or diets, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they they force him to eat bugs. <laughs> it's like Luther, you're such a heretic, we're going to make you make you eat bugs the diet of the worms. diet of worms it's it has if it's good enough for Luther. It's good enough for me. I am protein. No, so so Worms is just a town in Germany and diet was just like a a word used to describe like a trial or whatever. So so he's put on trial in front of Charles V in Worms and the the prince of Saxony, so the kind of the leader of the region that he was operating in had petitioned the emperor to make sure that he get safe passage. Luther's writings are laid out in front of him. And he's asked two questions. Did you write them? Mm -hmm. And are you going to stand by them? Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, first question, yeah, I wrote them. Second question, give me a minute. Give me a day. So they give him a day. He spends some time praying. The next day he comes back and he says, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, For I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves. I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. And then when he's further questioned, he simply says, Here I stand. I can do no other.
1: Yeah, he's he's finally because he's a he's a bit of a writer, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of there's a lot of flower and bloom and color in the things that he says, and eventually Charles just says in simple words, "Say what you got to say," right? Like mm-hmm. you're doing this sort of like rhetorical, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't think he's really doing like. It almost makes you wonder if maybe Charles didn't understand. (laughs) Like if he was having trouble following. Kind of like when you're reading John Owen. Yeah. And you're just like, I really believe that this is good for my soul, but I don't know what I've been doing for the last 30 minutes. I'm going to have to reread the whole thing. But I I wonder, (laughs) I don't know. There's There's a a lot of
0: inbreeding in the royal family, so maybe he wasn't firing on all cylinders.
1: (laughs) But they finally do the whole in plain English And, uh, yeah, Mm. it's, uh, that statement when he says I can neither nor will I retract anything Mm -hmm. for it cannot be either safe or honest, uh, for a a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do, I I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. May that be the first thing we go to. Yeah. When, when challenged on what we are convinced and know to be biblically sound doctrine.
0: Mm-hmm. So the result of the Diet of Worms is that the emperor declares him an outlaw. His writings are banned. Mm-hmm. It becomes a crime to give him food or shelter. And anyone, anyone could kill him without any legal ramifications. So they're not willing
1: put him to death
0: well i think they had to give him safe passage away because of the pre-agreement or whatever so they're like you you can go but we're gonna like just set everyone loose on you we
1: are we are not completing completed the inquisition Mm. they could have given him a death sentence right (laughs) they are the church Mm -hmm. and they have done this a lot sure i think they didn't because there was a number of people following that trial
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah. and and in the same way that the pharisees talked many times about putting Jesus to death but they feared the people
0: yeah yeah no that's i think there's there's a fair there's a fair parallel so there. basically he's
1: free game mm-hmm. no law applies to him mm-hmm. go run mm-hmm. and and i think they were just and their minds hoping for the best and be like, well,
0: we didn't do it. Yeah. Someone will kill him, but it won't be us. Yeah. So Luther leaves the proceedings, um, but then is escorted in secret to uh, Wartburg castle by Frederick the third, who was known as the elector of Saxony. So essentially the local noble who was, who had Luther's back. Um, and so while he is hiding out at this castle, he spends a lot of time translating the scriptures into German, continues to write against various practices, including the practice of indulgences. In fact, he writes so prolifically on that subject that that archbishop stops doing what he's doing. He gives, he gives up because <laughs> probably it's just like, it just embarrassed. He's probably publicly embarrassed oh, yeah. by this practice of selling indulgences to pay off his own personal debts right, for all the favors that got him into the position. Like, it's just, it's levels of corruption on top of corruption, and it's, yeah, anyways. But while while Luther is hiding out, the peasant revolt kicks off, and the peasant revolt is one of these weird things where many of the people who were part of this revolt were influenced by Luther's writings, but he was not in favor of it. Mm -hmm. So he 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 called for them not to take specifically not for them not to take up arms in the name of the gospel um you know the the peasants were kind of like saying they were like quoting the passage in acts where all christians held everything in common as like reason to like burst into nobles homes and steal all their stuff (laughs) and so luther's like no no you can't force the goods of others to become common property. Right. It has to be like the the people gave it up of their own free will. Right. Right. That doesn't work that way, guys. Um, And so he called on them to obey earthly authority. So he was not in favor of the peasants revolt, even though he was kind of a hero of theirs. It was a whole, it was a whole mess. Um, And it ends up kind of being squashed, although it's not by no means the last conflict between the Protestant movement and the Catholic church
1: right we we still have a lot of time to talk about oh yeah those differences and and I think I think at this point it feels like we're wrapping up Luther mm. and we're going to move on but I think it's important even now to know that there are a lot of adjacent men mm-hmm. and events that are taking place through Luther's life okay this yeah. is a wrap up of the biographical snapshot of Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. But we are going to be talking about, we're, we're going to go back in time again next week, yep. pick up other people, and a lot of things that go along adjacent, men who are communicating back and forth with him. Mm-hmm. If, if you feel like you're like, we didn't get a whole lot of theology from Luther, and that's his major contribution, mm-hmm. right? Those things are going to come to the surface, in subsequent conversations. Yep. Yeah. He is just such a figure that his history deserves its own episode.
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: And because his history emboldens and makes possible a reformation that changed the church in a way that it will n- it will never be undone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so if this episode is martin luther next is luther and friends and their impact (laughs) so stay tuned for that (laughs) right yeah 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 sounds good
1: all right well thanks for listening this podcast is a resource of memorial baptist church in stratford ontario in cooperation with the gospel coalition of canada and is produced by alex walker see you later bye bye